Hello, and welcome to our Asian American Studies podcast. In this episode, Every Kim, Every Do, All at Once, we will be interviewing Kim Do about her identity, her family's history, and her perceptions of the beauty industry. My name is Ianu Sunmo, and I'm majoring in government. My name is Pania Vang, and I'm also majoring in government. I'm Reese Lavajo, majoring in biology. Kim Adu is a fourth year at Lawrence University pursuing a bachelor's degree in English literature with minors in education studies and teaching ESL. Kim is also an active member of the Pan-Asian Organization on Campus, which is a network that supports and empowers students who belong to the Asian and Asian American community. Kim is here today to tell us about her experiences as an Asian American in the United States, how the Vietnam War impacted her family, and her experience and perceptions of beauty, especially of the industry built around them. Welcome, Kim. Thanks so much for joining us today. We're thrilled to have the chance to speak with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So one thing that we've read about and discussed in class is the way that people of Asian descent navigate their identity, family history, and experiences in the United States. So we'd like to hear more about your identity and family history. Specifically, could you tell us more about your family and the community you grew up in? What is your family history? So my family immigrated um, from Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So I grew up in Milwaukee and um, Milwaukee is the biggest city in Wisconsin and it's also a pretty big county, um, which means that the Vietnamese population where I grew up is very spread out. Um, And so I thought that my family was the only Vietnamese family um, in Milwaukee because I, I never really met any other Vietnamese people. Um, like at school, my brother was the only other Vietnamese person um, that I knew. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of like grew up in the culture of like my family. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kim. Uh, you know, given your family history and community, could you tell us how you identify in terms of race, culture, and in this city and how your family impacted your relationship with your culture did Yeah, so I identify as Vietnamese American, um, but it took quite a while to get to that point. Um, I, I feel like when you are of like a, a minority or a minority culture in the dominant culture of the United States, it's kind of hard to navigate where you fit in, um, especially when you're in between cultures. Um, and like growing up, my mom always said that I was Vietnamese, I wasn't American, but that was really hard for me to reconcile because I grew up in American culture. I went to school, my primary language is English. Um, and so I struggled a lot with feeling like I wasn't Vietnamese enough to be around like my relatives from Vietnam, for example. And then I felt like I didn't quite fit in. Um, like my American classmates because I I looked different from them I had a different culture than them my family spoke a different language than them um but now that I'm in college and I've had a lot of experiences to kind of navigate who I am and kind of reconcile um these two cultures uh, that are very important in my life I identify as Vietnamese American now so on the topic of identity as a Vietnamese American In what ways has your cultural identity played a role in your experiences in the United States? So this can be in academic spaces, navigating workplaces, etc. I'm always like hyper aware of my identity, um, especially when I 
enter a classroom, you know, the first thing I do is I kind of make a mental note of how many other um, POC are in the classroom, especially how many other Asian or Asian American students I noticed. Um, and being an English literature major, um, there's not that many uh, Asian or Asian American students in that field. And so I'm quite used to being like the only Asian student in um, my English classroom. Um, and I'm also aware of it when I like start a new job. Um, I always kind of do the same thing. I take a mental note how many other um, Asian or Asian American people are working at this establishment. Um, and because of my cultural identity, I've been subjected to microaggressions from people that I've had to interact with in educational spaces. Um, so in high school, I had a substitute teacher that made everyone introduce themselves. And I, you know, introduced to the class that I love to cook. And the substitute said, well, she asked me if I like to make egg rolls. Um, and I don't know how to make egg rolls. And then another instance I'm thinking of is in middle school, we took a class field trip to the roller skating rink. And my friend was teaching me how to roller skate. And an adult chaperone intervened and said, like, told my friend that, I wouldn't be able to understand how to roller skate if, you know, using the way that she was teaching me. And the chaperone was saying that I needed to be told in like angles and like numbers. And like, that's like the language I would understand if it was from like a mathematical standpoint, but like, I hate math. Um, so, you know, these, these comments were just drawn from like stereotypes or misconceptions that people form simply because of my physical appearance and uh, my cultural identity. So it's something that I always have to be aware of. Thank you so much for sharing aspects of your identity and story with us. Next, we'll be discussing the impact of US politics on family narratives. In class, we had previously discussed an article written by Kay Scott Wong on how war has played a central role in Asian American history. One long and devastating conflict that comes to mind is the Vietnam War that happened between the 1950s and 1970s which had an impact on Asian and Asian Americans. Could you tell us a bit about your parents or grandparents' experience living in Vietnam? Uh, this could be before or during the Vietnam War. Yeah, so my family is um, from Ho Chi Minh City, which is in the southern region of Vietnam. Um, I think both sides of my family grew up in impoverished conditions. Um, so like my dad, he has a bit of an interesting cultural identity and family history. Um, his parents are from China. And they were in Vietnam um, when these um, border restrictions were put in place and they weren't able to go back to China. And so they had to start their lives over in Vietnam. Um, and so my dad grew up hearing Chinese being like the primary language spoken at home for him. Um, but he grew up in Vietnamese culture and his primary language is Vietnamese. Um, and then for my grandparents, um, my grandfather was actually in the Vietnam War. Um, he was drafted into the South Vietnamese army um, and he was actually trying to escape the draft and he was hiding in a church um, when they found him and um, forced him to enlist and he actually was a captain in the army and he trained um, new soldiers on how to use weapons and, and all of that but he was never on the front lines and then after the war ended he was in prison for seven years um, so my grandma had to raise um, her three kids all on her own um, which was tough, you know, being a single parent and she had to like work really hard and like my mom had to start working pretty young to help earn money. Um, and they tried to visit my grandfather um, as much as they could. Um, and then eventually my family left Vietnam um, and they were 
they were known as like the boat people. I don't know if y'all have heard of that before, um, but that's when people in Vietnam would pay like people smugglers as they were called. Um, and people trying to leave the country would be packed into this like little boat that was connected to a larger boat. And then these boats would go out into the middle of the ocean and then the smaller boat would be like cut loose, um, just kind of set adrift, hoping that they would end up in international waters and rescued by um, the nearby country. And so that's what happened to my uncle. Um, he was the middle child on my mom's side and he eventually ended up in Hong Kong in a refugee camp. Uh, and from there he was sponsored by an organization in Wisconsin um, to move there. And then the same thing happened to my dad. He was also the middle child in his large family. Um, he was about like 14 or 15 when he went on this journey and he ended up at a refugee camp in Japan um, for two years. And then he was sponsored by um, a church in Delavan, Wisconsin, which is a pretty small town. And then he came over um, with his uncle and a few cousins. Um, so that's how uh, my family ended up in the United States. Thank you so much for sharing. So what was your family's reaction when they first arrived in the United States? Were they perceived well by American society? Well, since my dad came to the U.S. when he was quite young, um, it was a bit easier for him to learn the language and uh, get familiar with um, the culture. Um, he attended like, uh, I guess, middle and high school in the U.S. And then um, because he was in a really small town, um, everyone helped him out and they helped him like learn English. And he was able to like make good friends that um, helped him transition into like living in the U.S. Um, versus like my mom came when she was um, older in her 20s. And it is harder to learn a language when you're older and she didn't really have that support that my dad had. Um, and so for like my other uncle who came with my grandparents and my mom, I mean, my grandparents and my mom, um, they had to learn English as a means of survival. Um, they all like started working when they came here. Um, and so they picked up English from their jobs and also just from out of necessity, like if they had to go shopping um, and they had to learn how to like read the signs, um, they figured it out that way. Um, and my mom told me that um, at her first job in a bakery, she experienced a lot of racism because she wasn't fluent in English and she had um, a very thick accent when she, she did speak English. And so people kind of perceived her to be like an easy target um, where they could like pick on her, but she wouldn't be able to defend herself. Um, and that's still something that she deals with even today. Um, and then I'm glad that my family had each other when they first came. Um, my dad and my uncle actually were roommates in college. They shared a, an apartment together. And so when my uncle sponsored the rest of his family to come to the US, um, they all lived together in this one bedroom apartment. And so even though uh, my, my mom and my grandparents were trying to like learn how to like live in the U.S. and adjust to that culture. Um, they had like my uncle who had been there for a while and my dad to help them along with the process. So speaking of perceptions, oftentimes Asians are seen as the perpetual foreigner, meaning they're never really truly considered American. And so often they're questioned about their loyalty to the United States. This often ties back to the concept of yellow peril, which is the Western fear of Asians particularly the Chinese invading and disrupting what are perceived as Western values. In your opinion, how has the Vietnam War impacted Vietnamese people or Asian people in general in the United States? 
Yeah, I think the Vietnam War has had a pretty huge impact on um, Asian people and Vietnamese people in the U.S. It's still like a lasting impact. I mean, I'm thinking about my grandfather where like he still runs on military time where he has to eat at a certain time. He has to do certain things at certain times because it's so ingrained in him. Um, and because of the trauma he had to go through with being in prison for seven years, he, he just doesn't speak about that experience at all. He doesn't speak about the war. Um, and he told, he even told me that if people ask me about the war, then I should just tell them I don't know anything. But I think that's just a reaction um, from his own experiences living during that time period, you know, the uncertainty and the fear that he was going through. Um, and I also, this, this makes me think about like the Vietnamese population in the United States. Um, a large like majority of them um, are more conservative leaning and this ties back to um, like their relationship to like China during the Vietnam War. Like my grandfather was telling me that he really supported the Trump administration um, due to how they dealt with relations with China. Um, and my grandfather has like lasting animosity towards China because of um, their role in the Vietnam War. Um, and he's a bit, you know, wary about like communism and the communist government because of that. Um, and I also think about the huge Hmong population that's in the United States. I think that Hmong people being here in the U.S. is just a lasting testimony to the impact the Vietnam War had on, on that community, um, especially because um, the U.S. kind of, you know, persuaded and recruited Hmong people to help them in their efforts during the war. Um, but then after the war ended and like the U.S. troops withdrew, um, these, this Hmong community that helped like the U.S. were kind of left to fend for themselves and then they had to like flee and go to other countries such as Thailand and Laos because of um, poor relation, the poor relationship they had um, to the Vietnamese people and, and the animosity they experienced. Um, so I think like the huge Hmong population in the U.S. is just kind of like a living testimony to like how the Vietnam War is still impacting communities today. Yeah, that's so great here, Kim, because in the nonprofit field, um, especially like among Asian American politics and those interested in like policymaking changes, like they often talk about how um, in the United States, like a lot of Vietnamese Americans identify as South, South Vietnamese. Um, and it's also great to hear you talk about like Hmong people um, and highlighting them, especially like the Vietnam War, because uh, like my grandpa was also a veteran as well in the Vietnam War. Um, but <clears throat> if I remember correctly, um, in Minnesota, they recently passed a legislation that recognized um, a lot of Hmong soldiers who fought in the Vietnam War, which is great. So yeah, uh, moving on, I would like to go on to the next section, which is labor, beauty, and race. And I'll leave it to Reese. Thanks, Pania. So we'll be focusing on beauty-related businesses and the treatment of Asian workers in those spaces. So let's dive in. Kim, we've heard your family owns a nail salon. So could you talk a little bit about your family, how they came to the nail industry after migrating from Vietnam and some of the reasons for getting into this work and how that's been going for them? Yeah, so my aunt and uncle own a nail salon um, and my aunt actually bought the salon from the previous owner and she worked at the salon for quite some time before that happened. And she told me that she's like always wanted to own a nail salon. It's like been a dream of her. So it was really amazing that she was able to do that. And even when she was working under the previous owner, they bought the nail salon from 
someone else and so like that salon has like been in that um, community for quite some time it's been in the same location in the strip mall for quite some time and so they have a reputation and I'm glad that they're doing really well um, they get a lot of recruiting customers and I know for my aunt when she first came to the U.S. Um, it was just easier for her to get a job um, at a nail salon because a lot of nail salons in Milwaukee are already owned by Vietnamese people and so she was able to just make connections that way and um, get hired that way um, and it's I think also the reason why a lot of um, migrants from Vietnam usually end up working in a nail salon is because it's more manual labor like physical labor um, and so if they had to like go to college or go to school they might face like barriers in language and culture that would kind of hinder them um, from pursuing a degree and like finding work in like more academic um, spaces um, and so I think like that's why working in the nail industry is such a big draw for like recently arrived migrants and also because nail salons already have an established community of Vietnamese workers it's um, easier and more comforting for them to work in spaces where everyone speaks the same language um, and are the same culture and have, ha and have had similar experiences. Uh, like I know for my um, aunt and uncle, they're really good friends with their coworkers. And it's really nice that they've kind of made these really lasting connections and have this little community that can support them. So for your own personal experiences, what are kind of your experiences in spaces like nail salons, whether you're a client or a worker or just observing? Do you ever help your family out with the nail salon? I don't help my um, family out with the nail salon, but I know that my cousins do. Um, and I always like going to my aunt and uncle's nail salon. It's just nice, like, seeing them at work and seeing them, like, being able to, like, speak their own language with their coworkers and kind of have that community for them. Um, and I think it's also really, like, commendable, like, the nail industry in general. Like, I don't know how people are able to be so skilled with brushes and line work and, like, doing people's nails. Um, and it's just nice, like, catching up with their coworkers, too, um, because they're kind of just like family friends. And there's this misconception um, that when workers in nail salons are speaking their native language, they're talking poorly about the clients there or being very malicious. Um, and it's very disheartening to, like, see this, um, this misconception spread on social media and hear it, like, expressed by other people. Um, because that's not the case at all. Um, usually, like for my aunt's nail salon, usually when I go there, they're just talking about like family gossip or catching up um, or just talking about their days. Um, and it, it's it's just not malicious at all. And it's just kind of sad that people believe in that. And I think it ties back to the whole perpetual foreigner stereotype um, where people just perceive nail salon workers um, to just not being able to become a part of American culture and that's why they continue to speak their native language and then they vilify them for doing that because they don't understand what they're saying and so they automatically assume the worst um but I, I think it's just a really nice space to be in I like going there I like hanging out with my aunt and uncle when I visit yeah that's so great Kim to hear about you know your family's nail salon and uh, what you said like definitely a nail salon like it shouldn't be a bad thing to be speaking your own language, um, which is something that should be highlighted. Uh, moving on, Millennial King wrote a piece called What Does a Manicure Have to Do with Sex? 
which describes issues related to racialized sexualization of Asians, especially in regard to body labor like waxing and nails. Much of the article talks about how places like nail salons became conflicted with sex work. Just to preface for listeners, not all nail salons offer these close contact services. So how does your family deal with forms of harassment from customers? And how does your family's nail salon ensure the protection of their workers? I remember during the height of the pandemic, my cousin called me and he told me that there was a client in the salon who was harassing the workers and they were being very rude and they were um, saying racial slurs and being very xenophobic um, and saying things like, oh, like go back to where you came from, like go back to China, um, which is just very insensitive of them. And I was very worried for my family's safety. Um, I'm not sure how they were able to um, get the client to like leave the salon, but eventually the customer like did leave. And I was very grateful that my family and like people working there weren't harmed or anything or that the situation didn't escalate any further. Um, But I was definitely very worried um, for my family's nail salon uh, during that time um, because anti-Asian sentiment rose so exponentially uh, during the height of the pandemic. And it's not to say that anti-Asian hate crimes and anti-Asian um, sentiment hasn't been a part of like our society because it has, it's very ingrained in US um, history. Um, but it was really exacerbated during that time period. And I'm just really glad that my family and the people working there um, were safe, um, but I'm not really sure how they even dealt with that customer. I don't really know what policies they have in place to ensure the protection of their workers. I hope they do have something in place because um, working in a nail salon can be very, very taxing um, on your body. Like my aunt, she has to wear um, a mask the entire time she's there because the chemicals are just so strong. Um, and also she like has to wear gloves because you know being in constant exposure with chemicals isn't the best for your skin and your body. And my other aunt who lives in California, she also used to work in a nail salon, um, but she told me she stopped doing that because um, the chemicals, it just gave her headaches and it just really affected her physically and she just couldn't be in that environment anymore. Um, So it's definitely like a physically demanding um, line of work to be in. Thank you for sharing, Jim. Uh, What are some ways in which your family's nail salon was able to become successful Did they ever have any promotions, sales, brought in the community, or held events at the nail salon? I think the nail salon um, is so successful because it's been in that location for such a long time. Like they get mostly returning customers and very like faithful, loyal customers. Um, Like my aunt has received like gifts from customers before, like for Christmas or just like free food that they give her. And so I think like my aunt and the workers there have made like really lasting connections um, with the community members. Um, and that's why they keep coming back. Like there's literally a nail salon across the street from theirs. Um, but I think that they're not in competition or they don't have to worry about being in competition because they can rely on their returning customers to always come back and like catch up and talk to them. Um, which is, I think is really nice that they're able to have like those relationships with um, community members. And I, I remember when my aunt and uncle first bought the salon, um, my aunt was telling me to like tell everyone I knew and to like share like like this poster with everyone, um, to try to bring in some more business. Um, and she was telling me like, if 
my friends come in, they would get a discount. Um, and so I'm glad that they don't really have to rely on doing like uh, sales or promotions or trying to like spread their business by word of mouth anymore. Cause I think by now they've been very established as owners and they've like done a lot of great changes to the salon as well. Um, I don't think they've held any events at their nail salon. Um, but I think like, again, like the nail salon itself is its own community. Cause I know like for Christmas, like my aunt and uncle and their coworkers like had a big dinner and like did karaoke. And so I love that they have that support network for them. Thank you, Kim. So can you talk a little bit about how your family's cultural background influences the way that they perceive beauty, beauty standards and the industry surrounding it? And if you can kind of compare what it's like in Vietnam versus when they came over to the United States? Yeah, like a big thing that I think has stayed consistent in Vietnamese culture as well as in the United States and American culture is colorism. Um, it's it's a huge issue in Vietnam. Um, there's this belief that people who have darker skin tones are um, also of a lower socioeconomic class. So there's this association made between um, your skin tone and your socioeconomic class. And this is because um, Vietnamese people believe that if you have a darker skin tone, that means that you have to do hard manual labor out in the sun, as in you can't afford to stay indoors all day. You don't have the luxury to do so versus if you have like a lighter skin tone, um, that's associated with, with being of a higher socioeconomic class um, because you do not have to rely on doing uh, manual labor outdoor, outdoors and you can stay inside. So you have that luxury of being able to stay inside. Um, and growing up, like this was just something that I heard all the time. Like my grandparents would tell my brother and my cousins and I that we should play in the shade, like non-direct sunlight. And like they would yell at us, yell at us if we were in the sunlight playing. And I think about like my cousin who has um, a darker skin tone compared to like the rest of my family. And he was always being yelled at by my grandparents um, who would say that he like, he should avoid being out in the sun to get any tanner. Like um, he doesn't look good um, because he's too tan and things like that. Um, and we also see that in the United States and we definitely see that in advertisements um, with like the people that are chosen to be in those advertisements they're usually just um like paler skin um even for like poc who are in these advertisements they're usually very light-skinned people and we don't really see representation for uh, folks who are of a darker skin tone or a wider complexion range um and we also i think i also see that in um the there's like one type of body that's like perpetuated um, in Vietnam and also in the United States. There isn't a lot of diversity concerning um, like body figures and shapes and ideals. Um, and so I think there's this ideal of portraying people to be like impossibly thin. Um, and we see that both in the US and in Vietnam. Thank you so much for sharing. During this episode, I learned so much about the intersection between identity, family narratives, and beauty as it relates to the Asian American experience. I was particularly struck by your stories about how your family came to the United States and all of the adversity that they overcame, as well as the impact that living in the United States has had on you as a person 
and how beauty standards have impacted you. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you so much, Kim, um, for meeting with us today to discuss these topics. And thank you so much to our viewers for listening. And don't forget to check out other podcasts and episodes by our fellow classmates. With that, if the topics we discussed with our guests today can do interest you, we'd like to encourage you to read the essays Dirty Nails by Min Fu and A Debt Remembered by Van Truong. Stay cool, y'all.